All right, my friends, before we get into today's Live Inspired podcast, something cool that is happening more frequently going forward is that as I prepare to share my story on stages, I'm not known to that audience as a speaker. And I'm not known usually to that audience as an author. Instead, a whole lot of the ladies and gentlemen in the room are already following me and our work through the Live Inspired podcast. They're listening, in other words, to this voice right now through their own channels. Very cool. We've had more than a million downloads, as you know. It's a top 20 iTunes show, as you may know, which is very cool. But it also means that a whole lot of ladies and gentlemen are unaware of my number one national best-selling book. It's where I encapsulate in so many regards, the best of our story. It's called On Fire. It's a worthy read. It's been celebrated by Brene Brown and Dave Ramsey, Joe Buck, a whole lot of other luminaries who have talked about the impact of this book in their lives. It also has received more than 1,500 five-star reviews online that has very little to do with this guy's voice or the man who wrote it and everything to do with the reader with the impact in the reader's life and ultimately what it does for us professionally, what it does for us relationally, spiritually, relationally, and in every aspect of our life that actually matters. It's called On Fire. It is available. But rather than sending you to your nearby bookstore today, what I'm encouraging you to do right now is to let your fingers do the walking. Come on over to johnolearyinspires.com forward slash free. This is a gift. I want you to be able to check out the first two chapters of On Fire. So come on over to visit me right now at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash free. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Last year, I was honored to have my book. It's called On Fire. Some of you may have heard of it. Hopefully, some of you have read it. If not, check it out immediately. But On Fire was selected as one of top 10 books that every CEO needs to read. Well, on that list, there were nine other books and many of them were big titles that you would have heard of. But there was one book that I had actually previously not heard of. It was called Strategic Design Thinking. Cool title. And the author, her name was Natalie Nixon. I had not yet heard of Natalie, so I did what any uh, good researcher does. I went over to Amazon, I checked out the book. It came in the mail a few days later and I read it. Uh, it turns out this was an awesome, awesome book, not only about strategic design thinking, we'll talk a little bit about that today, but around innovating, around creativity, around design, around leadership, around results, around living and thinking differently than we did before. It's a powerful book. Well, Natalie, as I learned a little bit more about her, as fascinating as she was in this book, I think her story and the way she delivers it is in some regards even even bigger and better beyond the book. So the book is a great entry into her. But I encourage you to learn not only about the book, but about her story around her delivery, around her TED Talks. And that's what we'll be doing today. Natalie uses her background in anthropology. It's user-centered, context-driven, applied research, and fashion 
the ability to merge creativity, trend research, commercial business savvy to help individuals and organizations do three primary things differently, to see, to interpret, and to innovate. She is a speaker. She is a thought leader. She's a teacher, a professor, a PhD. She's a swimmer. She's a dancer. <laughs> she's an excellent communicator, and she's my friend. So uh, she wants to change lives through creativity. She wants to change lives through creativity. And I think it's possible. And I think after you hear this podcast today with my new friend, Natalie Nixon, you're going to realize how possible it is, not only in the community out there, but in the community in your own home, around your dinner table, at your hospital, in your schools, in your lives. So my friends, open wide your hearts, open wide your minds, get ready to be inspired, to think, to see, to interpret, to innovate, to lead, and to love with even greater inspiration with my new friend, Natalie Nixon. Natalie, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you so much, John. What a warm and awesome introduction. Really appreciate that. I'm happy to be here. No, it is my honor. I loved your book. I thought it was phenomenal. I felt like I was going back to school as I read it. Great stuff. <laughs> but I, for me, getting to know you as a human being and reading your articles and watching your talks and observing some of the interviews, it just was awesome. And as I learned more about you, I knew I wanted to bring you onto our show. So thanks for making time. Thank you. N Natalie, for those who have not yet read your book or gone through your classes or been part of your TED Talks, give us a snapshot of the work that you're doing today. So I'm an innovation strategist, and as you pointed out in, in your nice introduction of me, um, my you know my goal in my work and when I advise leaders of Fortune 500 companies is really to help them um, figure out how to leverage creativity as an innovation resource in their organization so that they can achieve priority business goals. And one of the big drivers for putting creativity core and center when I'm talking about business and to businesses is that I believe in a lot of ways creativity has been kind of ghettoized into the arts. And I and I say that with all deep mm -hmm. admiration and respect for the arts. I've studied dance I've, since I was four years old. And um, my mom was an artist, is an artist, a weaver, started playing the cello when she turned 50 years old. Um, my dad is a big devotee of jazz and, and the arts. So it's part of my core. But I actually believe we don't understand creativity, and that's why it's not used in the boardroom more regularly. And for our listeners right now who are thinking, you know, Natalie, sounds really intriguing, but uh, I'm not a board member. I'm not a CEO. <laughs> I don't even work at a Fortune 500 business. Does, does this have any application at all to me as a retiree, uh, someone who stays at home, someone who's an educator, someone who's a frontline employee at a hospital, someone who's just sojourning through life? And, and how would you respond to that? Absolutely, yes. So in, in my... My point of view is that to be human is to be hardwired to be creative. And what has happened, unfortunately, is that creativity gets drummed out of us. Um, and this is some, there's an interesting anecdote that, you know, some, some one visited an elementary school class and asked, uh, you know, all the kids who want to be artists one day, you know, raise your hands and like 90% of the kids raise mm -hmm. their hands. And they go through middle school, and the number of hands diminishes. By high school, it's a minority of minority of kids who who, who desire to be artists, to desire to be creatives, and to be an incredible scientist, an amazing engineer, um, 
an incredible homemaker, an incredible um, support staff in a nursing home. You you must you must tap into your creativity, and I define creativity as a system that's grounded in curiosity, and it requires us to improvise, to intuit, to use our intuition to the max, and that leads us to getting to insight. Mm. So if we begin to have a broader understanding of creativity, um, that opens up um, a much more expansive and, and frankly, fun way <laughs> of working and um, learning and, 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 and building a life. I love the word fun, and I love where you're taking this Me conversation. Too. So I'm, I'm going <laughs> to... You're talking about kids, how all their hands are up when you're little. We're all artists. We're all going to go to the moon. We're all going to change the world. And by a senior year, by the time we graduate, none of our hands are, are raising. So uh, l- let's back to uh, the time when your hand was going up high as a little one. Talk about growing up in Philadelphia. Who, who were some of your big influences? Oh, gosh. My, my biggest influences were my parents. I come from a very close-knit family. And... Um, and and then as I, you know, my mom put me into dance class at age four because I was so clumsy and she was a little concerned. So um, then my my big influencers became one of the, the principal dance teacher teachers in my life, a modern dancer named Joan Kerr. And I was actually in Joan's um, junior dance company by age 11. Um, and certainly, you know, older relatives um, in my family. But... Um, yeah, I, I I grew up in a city that's full of a lot of grit. Um, I'm I'm a city kid, hmm. and um, my educational path was quite varied. I started out in urban public school. Uh, my parents always believed in public schools, um, but by third grade, my my parents were observing that I still maybe by second grade is really when it's the the, the where we started to come in. I, I couldn't tell time yet. I didn't know my multiplication tables. My mom was drilling me every day after school and I was getting an attitude about it. And she really fought to get me into the um, advanced uh, uh, classes. And then a school that was probably 97% African-American, um, I was the only brown kid in those classes. And I would complain, I want to be with my friends. And she said, yeah, that's exactly why you're in those classes. So um, my father figured out that um, there was a suburban uh, public school. My father was a pharmaceutical sales rep. Um, he was a man of many hats. He, he really worked really hard um, to, to support us um, at one point. By the time we were in prep school and high school, my father did his uh, pharmaceutical sales job. He had a, a firewood business, uh, and he also dabbled probably not well in real estate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, by so by middle school, my my father figured out that if if we went to the suburban public school, he would only have to pay money to that to that county because we still lived in Philadelphia County. Mm-hmm. But that was an entirely new world that opened up for me in terms of of ethnic diversity or lack thereof. I went from thinking the world looked like people in my family, a brown and black world, to a world that. Um, frankly, I was called the N-word every other day for the first uh, few weeks of school in fourth grade. And my father would just show up in school periodically. I would be working on something, and I, my desk was kind of in the, 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 line, the line of sight of the, of the classroom doorway. And I would first see his shoes and then his pants, and then he would just be yeah. in the doorway, just kind of looking in. And then by— um, Well, Natalie, I'm going to pause yeah, yeah. you there. You know, John O'Leary, this will shock none of our listeners, is— a man, 
O'Leary. Typically, that means you're from Ireland. I have uh, lily white skin. I've never been called an N-word or anything else derogatory for the most part. I've never dealt with racism. When you're a little girl growing up in Philadelphia, um, how do you even begin to deal with, like, internalize that? And then what do you do with that afterwards? That's a great question. And, and thank you for for thank you for pausing me there and not just letting me just talk over that because I, I now, and in, in, as a solidly middle-aged woman, I do kind of gloss over that very tumultuous chapter of my well, life. And, and while you were talking so, there, I, I was shaking my head. And, I, and then I look up and my producer is over here shaking his head like, what is wrong with us? So, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, th there's a lot wrong with us. You can't unpack all that today, but how did what is wrong with us affect you as a little so, one? So what I figured out, because um, my parents knew, they knew and they didn't know what they were sending me and my sister into. Um, and they certainly didn't prep us to say, okay, girls, this could turn out to, to go sideways. It could be a little yeah. racist. Uh, but what they did do was equip me with courage. And um, every, and they did these, there were a couple of boys who did this um, and they eventually petered out. but. It was the first time in my life that I saw myself in a way that I had not seen myself and in a way that was frankly quite positive in my immediate community and family. And I learned to speak up for myself, which was a hoot because in public school, I was horrible at fighting. And in public school, you have to be really good mm -hmm. with words or physically. And I just made friends with kids who were better at that than me. So now I was in this environment where I had to really speak up for myself. And I used my words to speak up for myself. But I also would go into the bathroom oftentimes and I would cry because I, I didn't I didn't understand it. But just having my father's presence was amazing. Now, I was a, a girl who was very athletic, um, the dancer in me and, and just loving to move and be outside. And so, as we know, kids who are athletic, often it's easier for, for them to make friends. So what's funny is that by the end of fourth grade, those same boys mm. were my buddies because I was great at kickball. I was great at you know, all the stuff we would do outside. And I, and I was a really extroverted and, and friendly girl. Um, but, yeah, that was, um, that was a shocker. And that, that, was, that was the beginning of of um, realizing there's a much bigger world out yeah. there where I will, I would have to learn to um, assert myself and, 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 you know, I'm not going anywhere and, 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 and speak up for myself. So Nat Natalie, whether you are a second grader, some of my listeners tune in young, believe it or not, or you are a middle-aged woman or gentleman dealing with racism. That's my first question. H how would you encourage us to, uh, to deal with that? And then the second follow-up is going to be when we witness this in the community, mm. when you're in the classroom, when you're on the bus, when you're in a, a boardroom and it's happening in front of you, and this has happened in my own life, how, how would you inspire us and encourage us and, and challenge us to deal with it uh, more directly? So first, for those of us dealing with it, we're on the receiving side. What, what's the advice you might offer? Um. So I, I, I think whenever there, so, so first of all, we have not dealt well as a society in, in the United States with, with our history, which is a, a history that's full of a lot of violence driven by racism. And we have to understand, and I'm going to geek out a little bit here, but, 
you know, race is a social construct. It's it's not a thing. It's not really. I mean, it's it doesn't really mean anything except for what we have built it out to mean. And I always laugh when white people say, "Well, I I don't I don't have an ethnicity. I'm white." Well, of course you do. You know, <laughs> right. there are Irish, there are English, right. there are Germans, right? So we have different ethnicities with these cultural distinctions. But race is something that we've built up to to divide us from one another. So uh, as far as being on the receiving end, I think it's it's really important to know to really know who you are, to know your history. And so I grew up in a family where I was very grounded in knowing my history that as an African American, I'm descended from people who literally who literally built the United States of America. So there was no shame in my game. And I had I mean my parents had me had me and my sister watching the Telus the teledrama roots in nineteen seventy six yes, yes. I was six years old, which probably some people thought maybe that's a little too young for a kid to watch something like that, but it was engaging. They would they would they would talk in commercials about what was happening, or the morning and breakfast about what what we saw, and so it was super important to my parents to really equip us with who we were in a in a re- really positive and proud way. In terms of of on uh, for 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 uh, if you witness racism, um, you know if you see something, say something. Yeah. I, I think I think as Martin Dr., Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King said, you know, to ignore it or to just be silent is to be complicit in it. Mm. And I think fundamentally, we're not we don't we don't have conversations about this like you and I are having right now. We we shirk away from hearing other people's sometimes painful stories, and and the stories are not meant to. To, yeah, right. to create a, a guilty reaction, but it's just to have total transparency about this is this is just a little piece of of what it's like when someone who you think is just innocuously ignoring something or making a remark how how deeply it, it cuts. And the other the other thing I, I will say because I, I was a professor for sixteen years and in that time. I I was between either one of three full-time black faculty or one of two full-time black mm. faculty. And um, I, I was very clear that, in my view, diversity was not my problem. I mean, I, I, I'm part of a global majority. Mm. And it's for as long as white Americans still push the diversity issue onto the ethnic minority groups, it's never going to change. It's, 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 it's actually, it has been... For, if we talk about business for a moment, it's any it's unintelligent business to not have diversity. And probably, I estimate in the United States of America, we are probably at a thousandth of the level of innovation we could be, but for sexism and racism, but for the ways that we we have these these ridiculous barriers to entry because of the way people look. Um, and so we haven't at all optimized thought diversity based on our, you know, range of backgrounds and the range of questions that, you know, you raise because of your experiences that I would never think of and the types of questions I would raise because of my experiences. And so we actually are operating at a deficit because we are not more inclusive and we're not more proactively instead of just, you know, reacting to a situation that we see here or there. Mm. So I I came today prepared with three pages of questions and Uh-oh. none of them involved race. 
You know, I, I think it's important when you hear something that really touches your heart to pay attention to that and to bring it up. And I, I really appreciate, Natalie, the way you handle that uh, so appropriately and so beautifully. Like, I need to be inspired to uh, hear more and to be more open, and be, to be more diverse and inclusive and to recognize uh, that I might be part of the problem. I think sometimes we don't even realize that we are part of the thing that is causing the struggle. Mm. Well, thank you for that. Well, I appreciate you sharing. So you, your your dad, by the way, just to bring him back into the loop for a moment, he strikes me as being like this incredible hero in your story. And, and mm-hmm. not, not only in the way he showed you about work and ownership and showed up, but in the way he he spoke and the way he held you, great stories around that, and in the music he listened to. What what was his favorite type of music? Oh, well, absolutely jazz and specifically jazz from the cool period, which would have been the late 50s and early 60s. And um, he also loved big bands, so he loved Count Basie specifically. Um, but he just really loved to learn. My father on the weekends would read probably about, he'd catch up on reading Barron's and the Wall Street Journal and the Philadelphia Inquirer and then lo- lo- local community papers like The Leader. Um, so he was he was an avid learner. He mm. was a, a huge people person. I used to think growing up that my father knew everybody in Philly because <laughs> he would, um, when we would have days off from school, he would um, take us on his rounds. That's what he called it because he would have to visit a lot of doctors' offices. So we would go through Center City, which in Philly we call it, that's our downtown. Um, sometimes out in the burbs, sometimes in the hood, because um, he he serviced a lot of um, the the um, pharmacies and the barrio. And I thought my father knew everybody because he would talk to the bum on the street. He would talk to the guy in the Brooks Brothers suit. But it was just because he. Um, was so friendly and so curious and, and extroverted to to learn from other people and to help people. And after he died, he died in 2012 of, of um, cancer. Um, all these people, I would go into a Starbucks, I'd be in line at the supermarket. People would come up to me and they'd say, you're Fred Weathers' daughter, right? Or you're Weathers' daughter. Uh, you know, your father one time, he told me to read X and it helped me so much. Or your father sat with me for an hour and, and helped me through this hard, this really challenging job situation that I was going through. So so his legacy locally for me has really um, touched me and, let, and, and lives on. But for me personally, he truly was my greatest encourager. I mean, he, he was, he was, I, I like to say he gave me my cojones because he, <laughs> if I ever came to him with an idea or um, an aspiration that seemed so unrealistic at the moment, he would listen to me and he'd say, yeah, you should try it. I mean, the worst thing that can happen is you just, you'll end up back where you are and mm. that's okay. Um, so where my mother has always been much more the voice of caution. I mean, she's, she's a dreamer, but she also has, sometimes I think she thinks I'm a bit too audacious. So she'll try to, she'll try to, um, get me back center to ground a little bit. But my father was totally, um, the go-getter and, and really always encouraged me to to just go for it and try it. Your, 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 your father is remarkable. I love him. Your mother has equal. It's like, like the yin and the yang. Yes. We all need this in our Absolutely. lives. So I'm curious, you're a bit more cautious. Mother is seated in an audience and uh, I've had the opportunity and the honor of sharing my story a, a couple thousand times. I seldom get nervous, but when my mom is in the audience, it's on. <laughs> I'm seriously sweaty before I even walk on the stage. 
you had an opportunity to give a TED talk and mom is in the audience. What was it like sharing your story? And we'll talk about some of the, some of what you shared here in just a moment. But what was it like having your mother in the audience? It was amazing. And it was also amazing because the my father's passing was still a bit raw. So if I remember that talk was probably like a year and a couple of months after he had died. And so um, my mom did not know what I was going to talk about. Um, <laughs> I just asked her to be there. And my husband was also in the audience. And he knew a lot more what I was going to talk about because I was stressing him out so much about being so nervous about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, for, for me to be able to share um, in the way that I did, how this is kind of full circle of my father's influence in my work and my point of view, and for her to be there, she was so appreciative. And she kept saying, you know, your father would be so proud of you. He would be so happy to, to, to see the way you, you, you spoke and, 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 and what you spoke about. Um, so it was, it was, it was a, it was kind of a, um, on an energetic level, it was, it was, I was giving her a gift to just to, uh, let her know about, you know, how much both of them had influenced me in my work. When did you realize that you wanted to go on and, and, uh, get your PhD? <laughs> uh, so it's funny. I always dreamt of being a professor. Like when I was in college, I dreamt of that. And then I put it on hold because I realized uh, I, I need a break from school. I want to work, which was a, a really smart thing to do. And I still advise a lot of young people to please do not go from college to grad school, spend some time and work and get rich experiences and hustle and all that sort of thing. And when I became through a series of, of loopy introductions and got an invitation to become a professor, um, you know, I had a master's degree when I started and I ended up really enjoying teaching. I was told I was a good professor and my mentors said, mentors told me, you know, you really should think about getting a PhD. It will give you more options. Um, you're a great professor. It will really open up a lot of things for you. And I thought, eh, I don't know that I need to prove how smart I am in a little bitty area. And um, I was kind of actually dragging my feet in it because because the field I started in fashion management, the terminal degree is a master's degree, which I, mm -hmm. I had. Um, but, you know, and what's interesting was that every program I looked at when I began to investigate it in the United States just did not align with where I was professionally and personally. They all needed me to quit my full-time job, enroll full-time live off of a fellowship, which was a lot smaller than my salary. At the time I was single, I had a mortgage on my own. I loved my work and I kind of shelved it. I thought, well, this is, that, I can't, that's not feasible for me. I can't do that. And then I was on my way to London, probably about a year after I started investigating doctoral programs for a completely different reason, not to look at PhD programs. A week before I, I, I went to, to uh, the UK, to London, a friend emailed me about this whole field called design management and said, this is totally you. And I thought, what is this thing? I've never even heard of this. And when I Googled it, saw it was really huge in the UK and Europe, uh, promptly emailed heads of, of three programs and said, I'll be over there next week. If you have time, it'd be awesome to meet up if you don't, I understand. And by the time I, I, I was on my flight back home from London, I was completely charged and revved up and thought, if I'm going to do a PhD and spend that intensive amount of time, 
this is what I want to do with it. So, so like most of my life, it happened in a very roundabout kind of mm-hmm. way. <laughs> well, you go forward with it, but you're having a tough time coming up with, is it your thesis? Am I even framing this right? You, um, say that again. You, my understanding is you find yourself trying to figure out what you're going to write on. And you're at the Ritz-Carlton. Mm. I think you were in, gosh, Mexico, maybe in Cancun. Bahamas, that's right. Oh, yeah. Bahamas. So uh, you, the individual, one of your mentors, suggests that where you are and what you're seeing is exactly what you should write about. And they, the, the term is theoretical construct. Mm-hmm. Tell me and tell our listeners what a theoretical construct is so we can get a handle on it. Uh, boy, so a theoretical construct, when you're writing... When you're doing doctoral level research, you first have to figure out what is the question you want to explore, your ontological perspective, blah, blah, blah. You have to do a literature review because you have to understand what is the body of work that you're contributing to. So you have to understand what is it that I'm saying that I'm researching that's actually distinctive and a contribution to, um, to the work that already exists, to the knowledge that already exists. And then you have to wrap all of your research into a framework. So the theoretical construct is basically a way to frame what you're talking about. And that's what I didn't have. I didn't have a framing for, I had all the paint, I had the colors, I had the idea, but I had no idea how to package it. And so, um, yeah, as you, as you referenced, I, I was, I was alluding to research that I was collecting interviews that I, I, I was doing where there was this this theme throughout them about jazz and about how when our work goes really well, it's like jazz. And I just mentioned it off the cuff. I was Skyping with my, um, my, my doctoral advisor. And I said, this probably doesn't mean anything, but people keep referencing this. I think it's kind of interesting, but I don't, I don't know what to do with it. And it was then that she said, Oh, right. Well, um, you're talking about, improvisational organizations. There's a whole body of work around that. And so off I went and did a deep dive of reading about it. And it turned out that the people who theorize and write and research about improvisation in organizations, that's actually rooted in complexity theory and in Mm. chaos theory. (laughs) Well, now we're going to continue down the path. And again, I'm going to remind our listeners, whether they are at the Ritz-Carlton leading that organization forward or at the dinner table trying to figure out how to set three spots and, and, and get the dog food in, in time uh, to get to bed in, on time, that this plays into all of our lives. And so you've shared in the past seven principles for improvising at work and in life. And mm. you tied them to jazz, which I thought was such a cool way to do it. And so I'm gonna invite you to guide us through the seven, if you uh, if you don't mind, and tell us a little bit more about what they mean, and I'll, I'll kick you off. But it starts with provoking confidence. What, what does that mm-hmm. mean, and how does it help? Um, so provoking competence is, well, first of all, let me just give credit where credit is due. Those seven principles are not seven principles that I thought of. They're actually from Frank Barrett. And Frank Barrett is a professor in San Diego, and he's also a jazz musician. And wow. so he's the he's the person who thought of the seven principles. What I did with those seven principles was connect them in a service design and experience design context to, and and especially specifically within um, the hospitality industry. Mm -hmm. So the provoking of competence is something that you will see um, in a jazz set 
where one musician may play play a solo, and then there's almost like an offering to another musician to top that, <laughs> right? So they're they're provoking the other musician to be competent in what the offer just was musically. And then the way that looks look like in an organization or at work is is the point is what if you could have a work environment where instead of having a competitive work environment, you have a work environment where people are prompting and provoking competence competence and and better work from each other. So that's what provoking competence is about. So Natalie, I, I, I love this. I'm gonna invite our listeners right now if they are seated and uh, just listening to open up their journals because these these are really worth writing down and not only writing down the ideas, but writing down what it means to them. So when you think about provoking confidence, what's one strategy that we could provoke confidence, whether it's at work or at home? What is one strategy like that is, we could do? Exactly. Mm-hmm. You, you showed a picture before of a mother uh, bird kind of pushing our little baby bird out of the nest as one yes. idea of provoking confidence. <clears throat> well, how do we how do we live into that as a leader, as a servant, as a nurse, as a teacher, as a parent, as a daughter, as a lady or gentleman, just trying to do life as effectively as we can? Um, yeah, so it's so funny because I was just having a conversation this, this morning about raising children today and how some some parents, not all, but sometimes we, we've we've kind of done um, maybe an over an over self correction. Um, I'm a Gen Xer, um, and I I definitely uh, grew up with parents who didn't mince words, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. So uh, I, I wasn't coddled, and so maybe we've gotten to a point where we kind of overcorrected that some of us. And so we were having this conversation about how sometimes we may be setting up our kids um, not so well by, by kind of sugarcoating everything and not exposing them to um, how things will always go their way or, 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 or how um, things can be unfair and and Mm -hmm. how do you rebound from a situation? How do you adjust? So, we can do a lot of provoking of competence in our child rearing. I think we can do a lot of provoking of competence in, um, and just being more collaborative in the way that we work and sharing ideas. And and a lot of provoking of competence happens when you're just more curious to understand how would you. I'm having trouble with X Y Z. How mm-hmm. would you approach this? So 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 just humbling ourselves to ask for help is it, I think another way of provoking competence. Well. From what I've read and learned from you, that idea of being curious by asking questions is a huge part of the work you do and the lessons that you teach within the classroom of life. One of your questions, one of your favorite questions is, how might we? How might we? Yes. <clears throat> Where'd you learn that question? And uh, what, how has it been applied in a really beneficial way? Like, t- t- just talk through that question. How might we? Uh, so how might we is a brilliant reframing that totally opens up conversation and problem solving. And it actually comes from the way uh, design thinking practitioners work and approach problem solving. So when I started my doctoral studies in design management, uh, an entire new global community of practitioners and scholars uh, was opened up to me. And so I would started attending a lot more workshops and then began leading workshops and researching with a range of people from around the world. And the how might we phrasing is something that's, that's, that's kind of a, a very kind of design thinking 101 way of 
of it, it, it shifts the onus of expertise mm. away from anybody, right? And, and it, so it, it as in the plural first person we, so it becomes very inclusive. And it's, it's about um, not focusing on a solution, but focusing on a process. Um, which is really what design thinking values. It's, it's, it's not solutions-oriented. It's process-oriented. So the way I learned that is um, through my own learning of, of um, about design thinking and then later teaching it and using it as, um, as a methodology in my own work. And I really, um, I actually had the, the pleasure and honor yesterday of having a phone call with uh, Warren Berger, who is the author of A More Beautiful Question. Mm -hmm. I love, love, love that book. And I was just talking to him for some advice on my next book that I'm working on and and, and, and an upcoming project that I have. And um, one of the things I really value about the, the, the book that Warren Berger did, A More Beautiful Question, is that he reminds us that Asking questions is a way of thinking, but what's happened in our educational system mm -hmm. and even in a lot of our work environments is that we begin to equate asking questions with ignorance, and no one wants to appear that they don't know something, that they're ignorant. But in fact, that becomes, um, when you can ask questions and when you, when you begin to cultivate an environment at the dinner table um, in, in your community organizations and your work environment, where asking questions is the way you lead, it democratizes the process, um, and it actually leads to some really interesting and unexpected outcomes. Mm. Well, I love it. And I'm going to have a link to your TED Talk where you unpack all seven of those principles. But, yes, yes. So that'll be, of course, on our site. But before we do, I got to unpack one more because I just love it because no one does this, Natalie. The second principle you shared is this idea of embracing errors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which we're all lousy at. So talk about principle number two, what it means, and how do we apply it? Yeah, well, easier said than done to embrace mistakes and embrace errors. And um, the way it, the reason why it's easy to understand this from um, jazz is because in a lot of ways in jazz, there's no such thing as a mistake. It's all about the build, right? It's all about if, if you accidentally played in the wrong key or if you accidentally started to play um, over top someone, you, know, you, you, figure out, you figure out in the moment how to build on that, how to, uh, how to make it seamless. So um, what we learn from jazz musicians is that, is that conversion of a mistake or an error into something new, not dwelling on it, right? Not making it mm -hmm. larger than it needs to be, but building on it. And so it's, it's interesting because um, I blog for Inc.com and the post that I'm working on for this week is um, I just, I'm, I'm going to share uh, um, three documentaries that I think people should watch um, to help them embrace errors and help them embrace mistakes. Mm. Um, and one documentary um, is about a sushi master um, who's in, who's in pursuit of perfecting sushi. So this idea of, of perfection is, is he always is constantly having to accept, no, I didn't get this right. How can <laughs> right. I refine it? 
the second documentary is, and I'm sorry I'm blanking on the names of both of these, but the second documentary is um, a newer one. It's on Netflix about um, two rock climbers who, who recently, who I think two years ago, this is when they started filming the documentary, two years ago they scaled um, El Capitan, that, yeah. that rock face that's like a skyscraper building. And what's cool is that they are free, I think they're called free climbers. So the only ropes they have are to catch them. And so I was inspired to watch the documentary because I heard them interviewed on Fresh Air, the public radio um, uh, long form Mm -hmm. interview program. And he said two things that were awesome. One, he said, we've planned this for years and it's really like a choreography. It's like a dance, which really made my heart sing. I love that, that he equated it with dance. And the second thing he said is he said, Oh my God, you're always failing. He said, failing is the norm. You're, we're constantly falling. So that's something that we just have to accept, but it's about where can I find this little teeny crevice to press my fingertips in or to press balls of my feet in in order to be able to scale. And I thought, Wow, who has the courage and the audacity to look at a slab of rock that looks like that and decide, I'm going to attempt to climb it, even though it's constant failure. So I just wanted to give people some inspiration of um, things to look at so that you begin to condition yourself differently about how you're thinking about making mistakes. And I actually think the best way to get better at accepting failure is to have a practice in your life that's totally unrelated to your work where you're constantly having to learn. And I actually learned that lesson from two people uh, many years ago. I was a high school English teacher and I was at lunch time, it was during lunchtime and a math teacher uh, said to me, he was you know, around my, my parentage and he said, you know what, you always got to be a student of something that mm-hmm. always will help you in your life. And I never forgot that. And when my mom turned 50, and we were in our our early 20s, she up and learned to play the cello. (laughs) Why? Because she always wanted to. And now my mom is 79 years old and still plays in small community orchestras and and little ensemble groups. Um, And it's really hard because, you know, she she started at a time where she was requiring her brain and and neural synapses to work in a way to pick up information that, you know, she hadn't been doing since she was five years old. So I admire her so much because she gets up the reserve to try and practice and show up and, you know, loves Yo-Yo Ma and loves these like virtuoso cellists and still embraces the music and embraces the process um, where, you know, she still accepts that, okay, I made a mistake. I don't quite get this. I have to learn this. But I think that if you have some sort of a a practice in your life that um, where you have to hone that, I, 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 my theory is that it, it, it conditions your mind and your, your um your attitude to yes. uh, r- to rebound better. You know, uh, you're on the <clears throat> on the line with a guy that does not have fingers but does love the piano. I, right, I know. And I I love the piano, and that's where I get a little bit of my creative outlet. I play occasionally when I'm invited to speak at a conference, and afterwards, mm. frequently, the pianists in the room come up and and say thank you, and they give me a big old hug. But there's a whole mm. lot of people that say I've always wanted to, but. But, mm. and then they fill in the sentence. And I love the fact that your mother had that excuse for five decades. 
And now yeah. here she is in her seventh decade playing the cello still. Uh, yes. Learning, making mistakes, but embracing them, not apologizing for them, but becoming better through them. And it reminds me of something that you shared that I've learned from. I love it. I'm going to do this in my own office. You were touring with students in Finland. You are mm-hmm. at a business, I think their name, like the Velvet, oh gosh. Uh, Velvet Creative Alliance. Yes, yeah. a Velvet Creative Alliance. <laughs> and they have an unusual thing that they are celebrating on the wall. Tell, tell us what they were, in some regards, showcasing and celebrating. Yeah, well, so here's an, here's one way that one company decided to try to deal with their failures. They said, you know, a lot of people and companies will talk about, yeah, we try to learn from our mistakes. We try to embrace failure. My, my husband, he... Um, he has a funny phrase he uses called humble brag. You know, when uh, mm-hmm. you've got like the Silicon Valley startup, the billionaire who, you know, will talk about a failure. You know, they, they lost X amount of money, but then the next year they went on and um, did the three great rounds of funding. So it ends up like, yeah, you kind of made a mistake, but that seems like it turned out okay for you. Yes. Um, so what they did at Velvet Creative Alliance is they actually pr- put in print, wrote down and published their... Uh, mistakes. I, I don't know if I can curse on your radio program. Come on, but, bring um, it on. Everybody's oh, open they, to they, that. They named, they named their publication Fuckopedia, and um, they spell it, uh, they're Estonian, so they, they actually, it was funny when I saw it, they spelled F-A-E-K-P-I-D-E-I-A. It, it looks funny to my English, um, native English-speaking eyes, but yeah, they, they said, um, we're going to we're, we're we're not just going to say oh yeah we embrace we embrace our mistakes we're going to like put the the really ugly wincing worthy ones out there and we're going to own it um and they and with the the owner Jano of Velvet he has just such a wonderful sense of humor so, so self-effacing um so but I also think the lesson there is so much of this is driven by leadership, right? It's driven by a leader mm-hmm. who, who also, who also in his own personality, her own personality has this willingness and ability to say, Oh, that wasn't great. That, that, or that, that, that was like awful. Yes. <laughs> it was awful. And, um, and put it out there. And I, and I think probably what it does for the organization is that it's a reminder of like, yeah, we 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 fumbled, we floundered, and we're moving on. I also have to say, uh, as someone from Philly, go Birds, go Eagles, <laughs> and and you know, wasn't that like the, the last Super Bowl? Just kind of this meta underdog story of you know, in a lot of ways, people in Philly, we 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 have an attitude, as we like to say here. Um, we're in between the nation's capital and one in of the most amazing yes. cities in the in the country in the world, and here we are, this underdog city with an underdog quarterback and an underdog team winning the Super Bowl. I mean, it, it, there were so many awesome lessons about embracing mistakes and, and, and pushing through failure um, through that whole year. So that that's another example of that. Well, my neighbor is from Rhode Island. He's a huge Pats fan. And if you don't think Sorry I was wearing green that. last January, <laughs> you don't know me well. So uh, we were we were doing what do you guys call it the the bird flop or whatever you're doing with oh, your yeah. hands. We were all oh, flopping yeah. around the house uh, after that game ended. So I'm sorry for those of you listening from uh, New England right now, but I had my green jersey on for the last Super Bowl. Yay, Natalie! Good. For for our listeners right now, what what is one thing? And I know it's hard to condense it down to one, but what's one thing we can begin implementing in our own lives to just become a little bit more creative? Hmm. Um, curiosity is key in my view. And, um, 
I have a a little framework I use to, to, to try to explain creativity. And I, I believe creativity is grounded in curiosity. And then it's this ebb and flow between improvising, really honing your intuition, and then, um, you know, embracing insights that come with that. And it's, it's not a straight line. It's, it's very loopy. It goes, you, go, you ebb and flow in and out of those things. But it really starts with being curious. It starts with asking why. Like, well, why do we do it that way? Or why haven't we ever tried it this other way? Um, and then, you know, referencing back to Warren Berger, he has a really nice, simple way of asking questions, which is you start with asking why. You then move on to asking what if, which is a way of blowing up the status quo. And then you get really tactical and, and ask, well, how could we do this? Now that we've, 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 we've really brainstormed and asked, well, what if we tried X and Y and Z? How do we actually put it into action? So creativity starts with asking a better question. Mm. It starts with um, being curious about why things work this way and not this other way. Why have I always done it this this way? And that requires you to have some ebb and flow between, you know, being super driven and 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 procedure oriented to pausing sometimes. And um, I've actually started to capture this in a passion project of mine. I call it the Wonder Rigor uh, Project. And um, it started by my observation of the way entrepreneurs reference um, in their origin stories. They'll say something like, something told me Mm -hmm. not to do the deal or something told me to work with her over him. And I started wondering, well, what is that something? It's It's nothing we teach in business school, but they all reference it and they're successful. And I, and I decided it's intuition and I think intuition is pattern recognition. And then I decided to do a deeper dive series of conversations with people and professions that I, I assumed need to use their intuition. And I, I talked to dancers, to DJs, to chefs, to first responders. And that led me to my second aha moment, which was when I was observing the way dancers problem solve Dancer choreographers are three things. They're systems designers because they scale and and zoom in and zoom out. Um, They are kinesthetic in the way that they problem solve. They have to move and make in order to learn. It's not a purely mental exercise for them. And thirdly, they combine intensive amounts of discipline with something else because we've all been to artist performances where, yeah, they're technically proficient, but it may not hit you in the heart. So that's something else I decided to call wonder. And wonder is dreaming. It's being audacious. It's, um, it's awe. It's pausing. Rigor is the, how I frame discipline. And rigor is discipline. It's time on task. It's deep skill. And what I was seeing in a lot of my client work, and frankly also in education, we put a ton of emphasis on the rigor part, on procedure mm-hmm. and check sheets and rule books. Um, and not enough time on the wonder. And at the end of the day, rigor cannot be sustained without wonder. And so I then developed this, this, uh, two by two, because what good forward business professor wouldn't have a two by two. And, um, from that, I, I created these, um, modes of working. So the wonder rigor framework has four modes of working, um, depending on the task at hand. So it's, so it's not a psychological tool of, you know, where do I fit in this two by two, but it's more about based on the type of team we're trying to build or the, the, or the project I'm trying to finish, 
where in present state, how am I currently approaching it, and how do I want to approach it in the future state? So the four zones are um, specialization, which is where you have a ton of rigor that's needed, and you have to really uh, do deep concentration, and it requires lots of skill. The second zone, or another zone, is the hacker zone. And hacking is where you need to fake it till you make it, speed over quality, uh, and you want to prototype a lot. Another zone is uh, is provoking and being a provocateur, and that's when you're in a total wonder state. You um, are not worried about deadlines and budget constraints, but you just become this what-if wizard, and you want to blow up the status quo. And the fourth zone uh, and mode is, um, I used to call it genius, and now I call it um, inventiveness. And that's where you spent time in the trenches and you've done a lot of the rigorous work, but you've also spent time in the clouds and really been dreamy. And now you can be a market leader and a thought leader. So I then created this this uh, card game, which is still in this prototype phase, but I've been testing it with a lot of groups I consult with. And it turns out that it, it I, I believe it can be a really fun tool to uh, prompt creativity. And the cards are really the series of questions um, getting back to how I'm driven by questions to help you to prompt uh, where you've seen rigor in your life, who are models of rigor mm-hmm. in your world, how can you incorporate more rigor, and the same for wonder. So that's a very long way to answer your question about um, how I how I approach creativity, how I think people can practice it. You know, I, I think that it goes back to asking a better question. Mm. It goes back to um, paying attention to not just the wonder, but also the rigor. Because I think the other thing that people who don't think they're creative forget is that creativity is not sexy. I mean, it it requires a lot of time on task and incessant practice, but you need to know the rules in order to rebound off of them. So the question was, just to reframe it, how do we become more creative (laughs) And Miss Natalie Nixon takes us on the journey of uh, unpacking different questions, including yes. why and what if and how could we? And then yes. to pause more frequently, to listen, to pay attention to something called intuition and then pattern recognizing. You interviewed great leaders. You designed some systems, kinesthetic and intense discipline. I love the terms rigor and wonder and the balance of the two. Awesome yes. answer to a very simple question. So I, I appreciate <laughs> that. And Natalie, all of our guests who've sat before you on the Live Inspired podcast have been asked and have answered seven simple questions as we wrap up. So I'd like you like to take you through this, the Live Inspired seven. You ready awesome. for it? Yes. All right. So here come the jazz musicians. Get ready to uh, take your spot. Natalie, what is the best book you've ever read? To, um in Search of Satisfaction, which is a novel by J. California Cooper. And um, probably a more beautiful question. <laughs> that's awesome. really top of mind lately right now. Yeah, those two books. Natalie, what's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little girl that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly and as brightly today? Uh, um, my audacity. And daydreaminess, definitely. Yeah. Well, uh, tell that little girl when you talk to her next, I think she's still got a lot within her. 
Okay. <laughs> well, I, well, listen, that, that's, that's definitely something that it, it's, it's a great, it's a great question. It's something I really try to hone, but yeah, that's a part of my, my core that, um, you know, it also, it often was in the form of goofiness, but it certainly got me to places that I would have never gotten to had I not just, just tried. Absolutely. If, if your home caught fire and all living things, people, animals are out, and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item. Natalie, what's the one item you come out with? That's a really hard question. Um, I think a photograph of my parents is an old black and white photograph that they took in a, in a photo booth, mm. and they're just so beautiful. They're just so young and just leaning into each other and looking out in the camera. And, and when I see that picture, I just see like the beginnings of me. So it's, mm. it's just a beautiful memory. Of and it, it's clearly at a time when I did not know them yet, but <laughs> I love that photograph. Uh, well, I think they were already dreaming of you. And I think that's, that's really cool. If you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anyone living or dead, who would be on that bench next to you? Mm. Well, the first person came to mind was my was my dad. Um, yeah, I'll start, I mean, the people who are coming. There's a lot of people. Gosh, but there's like Harriet Tubman, <laughs> um, one of my grandmothers, a grandmother who I was never able to meet. Um, people who are, who are long, long gone. Um, I would I would want to. Gosh, Dora Neale Hurston, an American anthropologist. I'd love to talk to her about her life. So everyone who comes to mind are, are passed away. I would just love to get their their perspective. Hmm. What's the best advice you've ever received? Um, best advice I've ever received is... Uh, I'll go back to my dad. It's just to keep on keeping on. It's like, it's, it's he, he, his attitude was always, it's okay. You know, just, just keep on something, 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 something else will come along. So, so that, that advice to persevere um, with a smile uh, is, is the best advice I've ever gotten. Natalie. Oh, oh sorry. Sorry. One more. Yeah, please. Sorry. Also for my dad, which he told all of us, uh, please. And thank you will set you apart one day. And he's right. Um, people really underestimate the value of please and thank you. Natalie Nixon, your father is uh, incredibly proud of the little girl he helped inspire and encourage and uh, introduce jazz to, but also life to. Uh, and so with that in mind, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read, Natalie? One sentence. <laughs> um, she was brave before she was masterful. <laughs> Natalie Nixon was brave before she's masterful. She is both today. <laughs> she uh, is an artist. She's a teacher. She's an author. She's an awesome lady. She's a friend. And uh, my friends, if you want to learn more about Natalie Nixon, I encourage you right now to cruise on over to johnolearyinspires.com. We will have the show notes. I'll have links to her TED Talk, to her incredible website, to her works. 
to her life. You'll want to learn more about that. Go to johnolearyinspires.com. Natalie Nixon, thanks for making time for us. Thank you. You're awesome. And I really appreciate you inviting me to be part of your show and, um, and know that how inspired I, I am of you and your story and the work that you do. So thank you for having me. Well, my friends, that is Natalie Nixon. This is John O'Leary. And today is your day. Live inspired.